here at Generation 180, you know, we're really working to inspire and equip everyday people about getting involved in this energy transition. And it's complex and big. And so in order to really have a good sense of where we're going and, you know, what's taking place, we want to give people a bit of a deeper dive into what's happening with this transition. Where are we right now? How far have we come? And most importantly, you know, where we need to go. So to that end, we've got Katherine Hamilton here with us, who has over 30 years of industry experience. She's currently the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's co-chair of a World Economic Forum Council. She's even worked with the National Renewable Energy Lab. You know, I, I could just go on and on. So Katherine, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Really excited about it. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, and it's been, speaking of excited, it's been really a crazy time in the clean energy industry, not just for the last few years, but like the last couple of weeks. You know, solar power's recent victory to two million solar installations, to me, that really stands out. You know, it took, what, four decades for us to get the first million and just a couple years to get that second one. I mean, that's incredible growth. Um, but is it enough? You know, what do you consider the most influential factor in us getting to that second million? And even more importantly, you know, how fast do we need to move? Are we doing it fast enough to reach our goals? Yes. So we are moving incredibly quickly now, which is great. We need to move faster. And that is because the IPCC report that came out, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out that basically said, by 2030, we better be on our way or we are going to have some catastrophic impacts. Serious problems. And in fact, we're already seeing those. You see them throughout the country and throughout the world. But by 2030, we really, really have to be well on the way to a transition. I think the biggest piece was a policy piece, which was the investment tax credit for solar. And what that did was it brought private equity to the table, and it also scaled. So it drove down cost and increased scale. And I think that was the key. Now, that's not to say that research and development has been huge, and we have to continue to do that. We have to continue to eke out every single bit of efficiency we can out of every panel. We have to cut down on soft costs. We have lots and lots still left to do. And integration on solar and other renewable energy technologies. But I think the tax credits really made this real and helped expand it at a much faster rate than it would have been. A lot of people will say, you know, well, clean energy is not quite year there yet. You know, it's not ready to be implemented at scale, whatnot. What, what's the response to that? You know, are there technological advances that we really do need in order to hit our goals? Or can we really get there with what we have today? So it's interesting because I'm co-chair of this panel at the World Economic Forum, the Advanced Energy Technology Council. And we met for the first time last fall, and we really had a series of presentations on technology, like what's out there in energy that's really new and different. And by the end of several hours of presentations, we kind of said, look, we, we kind of already have what we need. If we can just speed up what we're already doing, and by the time we get to 2030, all of those new technologies will then be viable that we've heard about. So right now we just need to really speed up what we can already do and we know how to do it, make sure the policies are in place to um, assist on that front, that we, that we set goals and then put policies in place that help us get to those goals and that those goals have to be really aspirational and try to point us in a direction that's going to be viable by 2030. And even if you don't hit that first goal, I mean, you've set a goal, you've set the guardrails for getting to that goal and That's you right. build on it. 
That's right. I always say, like, let's not quibble with whether we are aiming for 80 or 100 percent renewables by the time we get, let's worry about that when we get to 80 <laughs> percent, because by then we'll get to the 20 and right. the extra 20. I mean, I think it's it's totally doable if we can point ourselves in that direction. What are some parts of the transition then that you know we're not talking about? What haven't we given enough attention to that we really need to bring center focus So there's sort of two sides to the coin. One is that we can't take our eye off the ball of what we can already do well. So we're really good at tax policy. We're pretty good at net metering. We've installed a lot of projects through PURPA. We've done state renewable portfolio standards very successfully. So there are things that we know how to do, and we can't take our eyes off the ball. So we either have to continue to do those and expand those, or we need to figure out other policies that would be smarter and you know, more inclusive. Okay, so the other side of the coin is what are we not thinking about? One thing that we're, we're thinking about but we haven't really developed a lot of policy around is integration of all these demand and supply side resources so they all work together. So the other thing that we have to do is look at those hard debate sectors like aviation and shipping and agriculture and industry. So there are all these other sectors. I feel like we're, we know what we need to do on the power sector side. And the trends are pointing toward electrification and electric vehicles. So we, we kind of have this vision and we know what we need to get to to make that successful. But there are whole other industry sectors that we also have to pay attention to. Yeah, I think that really speaks well to my next question. You know, Project Drawdown has been getting a lot more you know, coverage. People are picking, actually picking it up as a book these days. That idea of 100 solutions. CNN recently put out a quiz for everyday people that was based on Project Drawdown's 100 Solutions to Climate Change. And at Generation 180, we focus on those in the top 10. But number one is refrigeration. And that, to me, has has at least seemed like a topic that's not getting talked enough about, just like you said, because it's this big industry that's going to be kind of hard to tap into. Yeah, that's exactly right. What we're finding is that while in the U.S., demand has flattened. Of course, there will be a bump when you start electrifying and plugging in electric vehicles. But generally, our appliance standards have worked really well. Efficiency standards have worked well so that demand is not increasing as we are still using more and more energy. However, in places like India and Africa, they want air conditioning. They don't just want a solar panel with a light bulb, right? They want to be comfortable and they want to have all types of refrigeration. So in those areas, demand is shooting up and we really have to pay attention to that because if we're not careful, there's going to be a lot of fossil fuel plants built to try to accommodate that. And it doesn't have to happen that way. No, absolutely. It it shouldn't happen that way for we do this right. So we're going to get to a zero carbon grid. I don't know if it's going to be five years from now or 50 years from now, but we're going to get there, hopefully. And since there are a lot of steps between now and then, you know, what are some of the things that we can start thinking about to best prepare ourselves for that? Yeah, so you say we're going to get there, but we're not going to get there without a lot of work. We need to put policies in place or continue policies that we know are going to work. We need a federal marker. It's it's great that states and cities and counties are doing things, but having a federal marker is so important for certainty. Corporates are doing a great job, too, mm-hmm. and they're pushing on state policy. But again, federal leadership is so important. Just 
both from the standpoint of having some sort of national marker, but also from leadership globally, because we are the hub of innovation in this country. And we want to be able to continue to export that innovation. So some of the things um, we have to also think about are how do we create markets? How do we really look honestly at what we're doing right now to incentivize fossil fuels? Like what are all of those subsidies that we have out there that are hidden? Really take an honest look at what is out there that we are incentivizing as a nation and try to adjust it to what we want to be incentivizing as a nation. We need to think about all of the workers on whose shoulders our entire economy has been built. So we need to think about all of those folks in in areas that have been supporting coal, communities that were entirely built around mines, right? And other parts of the country that find themselves in a place where the transition is happening without them. We need to bring them along and figure out how do we allow everybody to benefit. So that is not something that happens on its own. It's not something that happens just by having capitalism working. That Those are things you have to be very intentional about. Right, exactly. We have to be very intentional about our diversity and equity and justice as we move forward because those will not happen on their own. Also, research and development isn't going to happen on its own. All of this has to have some, not government control, but you need government to intervene at points where the capitalist structure doesn't work. So to support or to bring in partnerships. I think of public-private partnerships as critical to making this happen, to make sure that we're all aligned on what we want to do so that you bring private investment, that you also have signals from the government that are supporting that. So I think we all have to work together. That's right. There there are examples of how we can do it, definitely. Um, So, you know, one of the things that I think comes out with this is how complicated all of this is. We're saying it's so complicated, we need both sides, both parties to come to the table. And so when Generation 180 is engaging with our audience, you know, everyday people, we try to recognize that, you know, the energy transition, energy in general, it's, it's kind of daunting. And we try to make it as simple as possible. And part of that also has to mean that we address the fact that not everybody knows about this stuff, that it is not in our day-to-day. We flip the switch. We don't think about where that electricity and energy is coming from. You know, from your perspective, what are the biggest knowledge gaps around, you know, both energy and the energy transition that everyday people don't know about and that it'll, it'll make this a lot easier for them if they can understand? Yeah, so one thing we have to do is meet people where they are. So make sure that we're giving people what they need and want and in the language that they speak. So I like to think of it as not bipartisan but nonpartisan. This is about your daily life. It's about what you spend your money on. It's about your lifestyle. It's about you know everything you do and live. And most people have smartphones. Like, hey, you can control things on smartphones. It doesn't mean you have to think about it as a kilowatt hour, but you can think about it as managing the cost of your living and everything that you have to to manage in your daily life. We have to meet people where they are. Since you're talking to so many people, people like us, people in the industry, people from policy perspectives, I'm, I'm guessing in your conversations that sometimes you get some perplexing responses to perspectives or things that just, you know, raise an eyebrow, those those myths, for instance. And from your perspective, what are some of the, the most harmful clean energy myths 
that we really need to be working to dispel from an education and awareness perspective. Okay. One myth is that um, as one person can't do anything to solve it. So we can go into more depth on that. But definitely everybody has a piece. So I think that is a big myth. Another myth is that clean energy gets all these subsidies and, you know, and that it's that it's not a level playing field. Well, it's true that it's not a level playing field, but it's the other direction that it's not a level playing field. So that's another myth. Another myth is that these technologies are not ready, that this is somehow new and different and we can't do it. Well, already solar and storage combined are cheaper than building a natural gas peaker plant. They are supplanting peaker plants right now all over the country. Um, so it, that is a myth that persists that these technologies aren't ready and they are ready and they're being deployed. So those are some things that are just, you know, very initially we have to get around those. There's also a huge misconception that this is going to just cost so much. So you see the climate plans that some of the presidential candidates have put out and they're in the trillion dollar range. And yes, that's a lot of money. But then you have to look at what else we spend money on. What do we spend money on? What did we spend on this tax cut? How much money was spent on that? How much money is spent on our defense system every day? And then what you also have to take consideration is how much money are we going to be on the hook for if we do nothing? The cost of inaction is so much greater than the cost of action. And the cost of action has so many ancillary good benefits in jobs, economic benefits, and environmental benefits, in justice benefits. So the cost of inaction to me far exceeds the cost of action. So when someone throws at me, this is too expensive, I just say it's more expensive to not do something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know at Generation Unity we're, we're working to try to dispel those myths. So we'll keep trying. You know, and our everyday energy leaders are also trying as well. It's something they're passionate about, those people who are engaging with us in our, our campaigns and our programs. And I think we're going to put those myths to rest one way or another. That's great. And if you have really good information, like show people the facts. Say, here are the facts. Here are the studies. This is what's really out there. Try to Try to get people to turn away from the channels that they would normally listen to or look at that are biased and just give unbiased, really good information that meets them where they are, gives them enough information to have people understand what the facts of the case are and then how they can participate. Yeah, and when we can, if we're lucky, wrap that up in a in a story that connects with them personally. Absolutely. Case studies are huge. Like yeah. have, tell somebody's story of this is how clean energy or some kind of a transition worked for me in my community. Awesome. I mean, you just nailed it on the head from my perspective. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This was fantastic. We'll be looking forward to having you back soon. It's my pleasure, Blair.